I'm Prime Minister Boris Johnson and you're listening to Brits in the Big Apple with Hannah Young, Consul General. My guest today is Henry Timms, President and CEO of the Lincoln Centre for Performing Arts, an artistic and civic cornerstone of New York City, comprised of 11 resident companies, including the Met Opera, New York City Ballet and New York Philharmonic. Prior to the Lincoln Centre, Henry served as executive director of the 92nd Street Y, where he created programs and movements that fostered learning, civic responsibility and innovation. In 2012, Henry founded Giving Tuesday, a global day of giving, engaging people in close to 100 countries, generating hundreds of millions of dollars for good causes. Henry has also co-authored the book, New Power, How Power Works in Our Hyperconnected World and How to Make It Work for You, and in 2014 was named the Nonprofit Times Influencer of the Year, and in 2015, one of Crane's New York businesses, 40 Under 40. Henry is a visiting leader at Harvard Kennedy School and a visiting fellow at Stanford University. Henry, welcome to Brits in the Big Apple. What a pleasure it is, and especially grateful for, for, for reminding everybody how, how many years ago it was that I was under 40. So that, <laughs> that my, my days as a young and dynamic leader have come to a sad end. Oh, not, well, not such a diplomatic start from me. Apologies. No, no, no. I, in, in, the, in the spirit of transparency, I think it's very important. Proud, proud, my, 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 40, my 45th birthday is imminent, and uh, I'm looking forward to it. Well, you've still managed to achieve a huge amount. So um, we're very privileged to have you on the podcast. And I wonder if you could kick off by uh, telling us about your career journey so far and how you came to be in New York. You know, there are many Brits in New York who I think are really fortunate to be here because it's such an extraordinary and exciting and dynamic place to be. I mean, I grew up in, in Exeter in the UK. And my mom's a Texan, though. So we would always come to the States at Christmas. And so I always knew America growing up and always felt a real kind of deep affection for it. And then uh, 12 years ago, I guess, I was, um, I was thinking about a career move, career change, and ended up here in, in New York. Um, at the 92nd Street Y, and uh, which always felt very natural kind of exploration of kind of the American half of my life. Um, and so, and it's been a wonderful time since then. So it's been kind of, it was in the, I think America was always in the DNA to some degree. And I think New York always had a magnetism because it's New York, right? It's just, it's, it's this extraordinary, um, compelling place to be. And importantly, why have you stayed here? after all those years? What is it that's kept you here? It's very hard to think of anywhere which would be as exciting as New York, right? It's, it's such a place of, it, it, there is such energy and enthusiasm in a way that you don't find everywhere. And it's an energy and enthusiasm which is condensed to a very small number of square miles, really. And it lives up to the way it's portrayed in, in the arts, right? It's a place of ambition. It's a place of, 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 of great hope, actually. And so I think those are the things I find always exciting about New York. I always wanted to try try new things when they came along, and 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 that obviously um, was was not a career strategy I would recommend to anybody because it really wasn't very strategic. But it, it was I was very fortunate to end up with the opportunities that I've, that I've had. I mean, you say that um, there wasn't a, a a cunning plan, but when I was researching your many achievements, the one thing that stood out was your ability to spot new ideas or opportunities for wider social good. And I wonder if you could just tell us a bit more about where that drive comes from. Um, well, that's a very generous analysis of my career. So I'm very grateful, <laughs> very grateful for it. I think there was always a sense that I could, 
I always had a sense that I could sell things to some degree, right? Which is the, that there was a sense that there was, and, and I, right at the beginning of my career, I was selling some things that were fine, but didn't feel they were very important. And I think that was when I realized that, this, that I was always going to be in, in, in a kind of the, the social sector to some degree or the cultural sector, because I really felt good about, I got excited about new ideas. I got excited about new things, but I also got excited about things that I felt really mattered. Right. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't think, you know, a career selling toothpaste was never going to be the thing which would, I think, uh, I, I'm, and with no disparagement on those people who do that. But for me, that was not going to be the thing which was going to make me feel like I was really doing the things I wanted to do in the world. And so I always kind of gravitated. And again, it wasn't with any strategy, but I always gravitated towards things I thought had real meaning. So in the UK, my career began in the UK and I worked for um, Prince of Wales's uh, arts and kids when, when that set up and then arts and business which was that predecessor and they were all organizations about how you get the arts to young people how you get the arts to business I then went to work for an entrepreneur who who was extraordinary and, and her kind of vision for creativity in the arts and we did a lot of work particularly around kind of cultural diplomacy so there's this real thread of kind of how do the arts add up to something which can really have a profound social difference mm. and then the 92nd Street Y which is one of the jewels of New York is an organization who in its soul is trying to work out how to live fuller, more complete, more meaningful lives. Uh, and so that, there's always been a path of that, you know, the, the, that path of kind of that broader social good has been the through line of my career. And, and with that, if there was a North star and there really, that, that was it. And, and I, I followed that in a very roundabout and a very kind of zigzaggy kind of a way, but that was always what was drawing me forward, I think. Mm. And listening to you there, it, it sounds like you have both the, the the kind of creative ability, but also the business acumen to bring it together. I mean, do you see yourself as an entrepreneur, or how would you describe your um, you know, your, the roles that you you look for? I think I always liked I, I I'm I like to build things, re mm. really, and fix things. I think that's the the. The kind of the the bit of my career that I've ended up working for a lot of institutions, right? Which is not necessarily the most entrepreneurial thing to do. If you're an entrepreneur, you you set out on your own, you bootstrap your company, and you do something which no one's ever thought of before, right? That's kind of the classic entrepreneur. But I, I've always been attracted to institutions and the idea of actually the power that institutions have, especially kind of reimagining them. And I guess that's what I ended up doing at the 92nd Street Y and what we're doing at Lincoln Center is you take these great institutions which matter so much actually to to societies and, and to democracies, but they aren't necessarily the most relevant, right? They're often prestigious, but there's, there's often a gap between the prestige and the relevance, right? The prestige is high and the relevance is not quite as high. And so I got very excited about the idea, I think, of reimagining institutions and what you're capable if you can do that, which I suppose is to some degree a combination of some entrepreneurial instincts and also a capacity to be an operator and run stuff. And, and I like I like being a CEO. I, I, I didn't I didn't know that I would as much as I do, but I really, I like, I like having a kind of um, a foot in lots of different camps. So for me personally, it's always been a kind of combination of, I always think about my, my, my day job as kind of a combination of kind of tradition and institutions. And so there's always a combination of kind of laboratory and institution that has made me um, feel like I can add some value as a leader. The, the, the combination of having the strength of an institution and the energy of a startup, if you can pull that off, and I'm not suggesting we do every day for, for a moment, but we do from time to time. Like our team at Lincoln Center just pulled off, we did this, you know, it's pandemic year, and it's obviously been very tough on the performing arts. And they built a, uh, 
an entire performing arts center outdoors at Lincoln Center, which has been up since March. And we've had hundreds of performances, all of them outdoors this year, uh, with organizations from all five boroughs, with uh, high school graduations for kids who had never met their teachers because they've been on Zoom all year with like blood drives and civic drives. And we've been doing a lot of um, work in the, in, the, in, the, in the polling place. We've become a polling place. We've done a bunch of work around civic education. Like the, the, that's the moment that you kind of see the coming together of, of, of kind of the energy of the entrepreneurial energy of the team that we have at Lincoln Center combined with the kind of the weight of a platform like Lincoln Center, which is one of the great things about an institution like Lincoln Center is people take it very seriously. It's, it's got 60 years of, of kind of credibility in the bank. And so you can really do a lot with that if you, if you take it out for a spin. And so I think in moments like that, that's when I see an organization like ours, I think our team has just been remarkable in the last eight months as, as we kind of, um, you know, the, in, in 2021 in particular, the, the, the vision to kind of reimagine the entire space at Lincoln Center to allow us to meet our mission which is, of course, to foster the performing arts. I think that's a good example of, of, of you know, the, the best of the combination you've just talked about, which is this mm. combination of kind of institutions and entrepreneurs. Mm. Well, let's dive into your work a little bit more at the Lincoln Center. Um, you've been there now for, I think, just over two years? Over two years. Yeah, very, um, I'm very excited about that. Um, and tell us a bit more about your vision and your priorities. You talked a bit about COVID, which perhaps we can dig into, but, but if you take a step back, what is your vision as the president and CEO for the Lincoln Center? We actually set out a new strategic, strategic direction before the, before the crisis, right? Three things we're gonna prioritize. Number one is our constituents and the city of New York. So as you mentioned, we have these, you know, 10 extraordinary organizations on campus, Jazz at Lincoln Center, Film at Lincoln Center, the Philharmonic, Juilliard. You've got these extraordinary organizations on 16 acres of, of, of New York. So priority one was how do we connect the constituents, work with them to make the, the, the whole greater than some of the parts? And how do we serve New York City? That was really important, I think, to be very locally focused. Priority two was diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, Lincoln Center has always done well at um, the ambition and excellence. It hasn't always done as well at, at breadth and reach. Right? How do we make more people feel more welcome? So priority two was, was diversity, equity, and inclusion. And priority three was innovation how do we reimagine our model how do we think differently about the way that we engage and of course we set those three new priorities in advance of 2020 but if there was one thing 2020 demanded of us was one that we connected more with our constituents because our constituents had to be a team because you know coronavirus doesn't distinguish between us number two dei obviously was 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 a priority for, for many organizations in 2020 in a way it wasn't in 2019 so i think we had we had already set our course to do to, to do more intentional work there. And then three, innovation, we had to reimagine our model. And of course, what all the arts community have had to do is reimagine their model because with your halls closed, your inside closed, how do you think about using the arts to communicate? So that was the new direction for Lincoln Center. And, and if anything, we, I, I think we, we didn't change our strategy other than we sped up because we had chosen, I think, the right direction, which is we knew what we, we knew we needed to serve our constituents in the city. We needed to diversify our work. We needed to reimagine our model. And so we've spent our time over the last you know, two and a half years very focused on those three goals. And just picking up on that, um, and how, how straightforward is it to create a shared vision amongst 11 different groups and organizations? Have you, have you found any particular challenges or has actually those three 
priority has been quite universal and therefore you've been able to cut across the different types of performers and artists and organizations that you house i think that's been i think it's, been, it's really tough and that's been really tough for a long time at lincoln center the the, there's always been a kind of tension between Lincoln Centre, the centre, and then the constituents on who make up Lincoln Centre. And uh, but but I've been very clear clear eyed, I think, in saying our job is to serve our constituents, right? Our job is how we create value for the campus. And we have some extraordinary partners. The the, the ten organisations I mentioned have been so collaborative and collegiate in thinking about how we approach the world together. And I think coronavirus as, as well that was happening before twenty twenty. That, that kind of shared vision of what we want to achieve, but, but, but the, we had to face the coronavirus together. And so there are all these cross campus groups who meet together on a regular basis. Like, so when we open up, there are shared protocols for all the organizations in terms of how we're approaching reopening and how we approach safety of our audiences and safety of our performers. So there really has been this kind of collaborative spirit amongst the constituents over the last year and a half, which I think has, has sped up something that was happening already, which is there's more of a sense of a kind of campus uh, kind of campus culture right what is it how are we all bigger than the organization we work for and part of something more significant I think that's that's been a through line in our work and and I also think that we've been thinking about things a bit differently we, you know we're very proud that the the outdoor performing arts center that we built this year all of our constituents have used it to perform right so we've created they we've created an outdoor space to allow all of them and many other organizations the chance to rehearse and to engage with their uh, audiences and to perform again and there's something very um kind of centralizing actually about moments like this when i think people do realize we are on the same team and and everyone is contributing and i i think we've been very fortunate actually about how collaborative not just the constituents have been but but the the, the arts world in general has tr has really stepped up at this point i think to to show support for, for for different organizations you know just just last week we had an amazing New York moment, which was there that, you know, five of the great dance companies of New York dancing together outdoors on the same stage over a week, right? Which is an amazing thing to, you know, to see uh, Ailey and Dance Theatre of Harlem and Ballet Hispanico and ABT and, and City Ballet. All these five organizations actually dance together. If you want a kind of metaphor, I think, for the kind of spirit of the cultural response to the coronavirus, it's in moments like that you see the way that organizations who so easily could see each other as competitors in moments like this realize that these are not your competitors these are your allies right the competitors are forces much bigger than other dance companies or other arts organizations mm. and it, it sounds like um there might be some lessons learned in how you operate that you've taken from covid that can actually be played forward as part of your longer term strategy 100 percent I think we've, I don't think we've even begun to process the lessons learned from this period because I don't think many people have begun to process, right? We've been, we've, you know, it's been response and it's been, um, everyone's been running fast for a long time to try and, in the first instance, respond, to recover, to kind of rebuild this kind of, um, the demand, I think, on, on organizations, not just to do a lot of things, but to do very different things have, have been very real. So I think there'll be so many lessons which come out of this this period and I think one of the great challenges for all organizations is going to be you know does your 2022 look exactly like your 2019 I think for lots of organizations they will actually I think a lot of organizations actually won't learn many lessons from this period because I think the forces of um, 
doing the same thing over and over again is so significant, especially for successful organizations, because it's very hard to give up on the thing which got you to where you, where you ended up. Um, but I think that's the big challenge for any organization, certainly top of my list at Lincoln Center is, how do we make sure that 2022 looks different than 2019? And I also wanted to pick up on your first priority around being a cultural arts center for New York and New York City, because I think that um, music and the arts are in many respects universal, but sometimes listeners and the way audiences appreciate music can be really quite hyper-local. And, and I'm interested in whether through your experience, including in the UK, you know, what, what are the cultural differences or um, connections between audiences in the US and New York and audiences in the UK, if that's not a, an unfair question to ask you? No, I think it's a very fair question. I mean, I think that the great truth of the arts is it is the one universal, right? It is the one thing anywhere you go in the world that will be a way of you connecting with them is their culture and their art, right? It's one of the most generous things that we have because it helps us have a glimpse into other people's lives in a way which is very meaningful to them. And so I think one of the great things about culture, actually, it's, it's, so, it's so ironic that the cultural world, which can often be so elitist, actually represents one of the most democratic things we have, which is all over the world, we can work out how to sing together, how to engage with each other, how to understand cultures through culture. But at, at the heart of, of the arts, in my mind, is there is a human reaction to the arts that is universal. And I'll give you an example of that. If you look at the, when, when, when the pandemic first hit, you'll remember around the world, happened in New York a lot, happened in the UK, happened everywhere that people at seven o'clock each day or eight o'clock each day would come out. And th this was the time when we were, all, we were all keeping indoors, right? And they would all, it, for me in New York, everyone would open up their windows and bang saucepans. Right? They would bang saucepans together at seven o'clock. And no matter where you were in the city, you'd hear the sound of saucepans and sometimes a trombone and sometimes some percussion, but there'd be this moment where we would come together. And when you think about what was actually happening then, right? Cast your mind back. We're all hiding from each other. We are stuck inside. We are scared of anything which comes into our door. We're being told to distance. We are being told to keep away. At that moment, there is one way we can find to connect, to bring ourselves together. And that's the power of the arts. You know, at seven o'clock every night in New York, the, the worst community orchestra that has ever existed started to play, right? They, they started to play, they never rehearsed, but they could do it. At seven o'clock, they made music together, right? We had lost so much of what makes a society, what makes a city. We'd lost so much, but we kept one thing. And that thing we kept was our capacity to make music together. If you are looking for the true values of, of the arts, remember moments like that, when we run out of words and we run out of opportunities and we reach for something very human to find a way to connect. And it seems to me that that's the, the way to think about the arts more broadly around the world is at a time when so many forces are pushing us apart, right? And you're right, actually, my, my son's love of um, wanting to play the drums, I can probably chart that back to um, when we we're in the UK, doing the UK version clapping and my son running up and down the, high right. the street with the pots and pans. So uh, it's that profound moment when you're listening to a piece of music or, as you say, poetry or theatre that just encapsulates what you want to say but can't put into words. It's, it's, it's incredibly powerful. The other big topic, which is very much at the heart of all of our efforts at the moment that you've already uh, mentioned is D&I. And I wonder if you can tell us a little bit more about your 
priorities at the Lincoln Centre and what you're doing to be more representative of the city and the communities around us? Our, our, our job is to try and be the best, right, as an organisation. And we are very focused, like I think everyone, any organisation is trying to focus on how you can perform at the highest level. And the way we think about DEI is it, it, it's, we, we simply cannot be an excellent, a truly excellent organisation. We, we cannot be, hope to be the highest performance organization unless we serve more broadly in terms of what we create. And so the, the, my colleague, Lair Johnson, who's, who, who runs our communications and government work and 16 other things, she talks about the idea of, of Lincoln Center. She talks about the idea of inclusive excellence. So it's this idea that DEI is not this thing we ought to do over here because everyone's now focused on DEI or because it's a kind of moral imperative, although it is. Her framing, which I thought really spoke for our organization, was inclusive excellence, that the idea that we believe in excellence as much as we always have. We believe in the, in the, the highest standards. We believe in people working very hard. We believe in great creative leaps and, and great creative ambition. But that has to be inclusive of a much broader group of people. So we're very much thinking about that idea of inclusive excellence and, 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 and how meaningfully things change. So we have a very long way to go as an organization, but I'll give you just some examples of how we're thinking about transformation. Um, our board, um, we've made significant changes with, with our board of directors. So there are many more people of color uh, and women on the board. Our executive staff, 50% of our executive team uh, are people of color, the majority are women. Um, and that's a third of our senior staff now. And in the way that we think about how we are uh, programming, we've done a lot of programming now, the, the restart stages programming, the programming we've done during the pandemic has represented dozens of different uh, perspectives from people from around New York and from around the world. We've highlighted voices who uh, have been underrepresented at Lincoln Center, I think, historically. So there's been, there's been a, a lot more intentional curatorial lens. And then the big project, the big building project we're working on right now, uh, David Geffen Hall has been under, uh, that, that building has been, for a long time, has been an effort of various efforts to reimagine and redevelop it. And we are, because of, we were going to be building that over the next four years, but because of the coronavirus, we decided to build through the crisis, build through the pandemic with the goal of opening earlier. And we'll open that building next year, 2022. And the, that, of course, doesn't just have a profound economic impact in terms of the jobs created and the economic value it brings to New York. But we're especially proud that, that as of today, 42% of the contracts for that project are with minority and women business enterprises. Mm. And I mentioned all those things only in the sense that, uh, to give you a sense to your question, which is how do you think about DEI? I think we, we, we are really trying to think about this, A, in, in my colleague's framing layer, this framing of this is how you become excellent. In, inclusion and excellence are the same thing, not different things. They are the same thing, uh, point one. And then point two, I think we're thinking you know, structurally how do we make sure that we are embedding um, diverse perspectives in, in all the work that we do from how we're governed to how we spend our money to how we behave. And look, we've got a very long way to go. No one is um, taking, no one is taking a bow or will, will, will on this topic because we have a, a lot of, 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 of work to do. We have a lot of transformation to make, but, I, but I'm, I'm pleased that we, the board has been, I think really the board has been visionary actually in, in being prepared to really say we're going to transform as an institution and I hope that the Lincoln Center story is one that we can really show how an organization who had a very good 20th century 
can start to demonstrate how it's really going to transform for the 21st. And ultimately, I think that's my job, right, is to make sure that the, the hand on heart, we can think to ourselves the next 10 years might be our best, right? And, and any organization who's more than four, 40 years old struggles hand on heart to say the next 10 years will be our best because it gets harder and harder to, to reimagine. But that's the bar we have to clear. Mm. It's a good challenge to set yourself. Uh, do you think there's a challenge around certain types of music feeling less accessible to people? I mean, we've spoken before on this podcast around classical music in particular and how, you know, sometimes it can feel quite far away from people. And I just wonder if there's something there around how you break down those barriers, you know, whether that's through education, whether that's through community engagement, whether that's through, you know, making tickets, you know, more accessible for a broader range of people. I just wonder if you have any thoughts on how you create that accessibility for everybody. A project we've done this year, actually, which I think has been a step in that direction, the uh, theatre designer Mimi Lien. Um, uh, if you don't know Lincoln Centre, for those who, who, don't, who aren't New Yorkers or don't, or don't know it, it's 16 acres, it's mid-century building. If you've seen Ghostbusters, it's the building where, where Bill Murray dances around the fountain in Ghostbusters, that's Lincoln Centre. The, the kind of the heart of it, the most iconic bit of it is this, this plaza in the front of Lincoln Centre, which the opera and the Philharmonic and the ballet all look onto. And at the heart of that plaza is this fountain. And the, and the theatre designer, Mimi Lien, built for us this year a lawn, this beautiful artificial lawn, um, which covered the plaza and completely revolutionized the space. It completely made this feel like a space that wasn't somewhere with some kind of austere barriers to keep you out, but a place where you could just come and sit and hang out. And so it's been really interesting in this year in particular to see that that, that, that work in itself to some degree was, was an effort towards accessibility, which was to, to be saying to people, we want you to be here. We want you to come and hang out. We want you to come and have an ice cream. We had pop-up performances all day long. So you were engaging with the arts here, but you weren't being told you had a, you know, you didn't have to pass a 15 question Mozart survey before we were gonna let you into the building, right? So there is a sense of part of our job, I think is to create an on-ramp to the arts and make sure that's as easy as possible. And I also think it's part of our our challenge to defend art that is harder work. Because I think the real danger is that if you just play to the crowds over and over again, you'll play the same music, which is uh, wonderful and attractive and universally loved, but isn't challenging in the way that the arts ought to be. So that balance, if you think about anyone who's curating work in a serious way, it's always a balance between what is gonna drive people's interests, what will people wanna buy a ticket for, and what out there might not they know, which actually will confront them in some interesting and new ways. As I was listening to you talking about those, um, breaking down those unwritten rules, I remembered when my dad first took me to the proms, he had to jump on me as I started to try and clap at the end of a movement as opposed to at the end of the actual piece. It, it always seems to me that whenever you hear people clapping between movements, it means something important. Uh, and what it means is that there are people who don't know the rules here. And if they don't know the rules, it means probably they haven't been before, right? Yeah, and, if, yeah. and if your biggest yeah. problem as a presenter is there's too many people in the audience who haven't been there before who are expressing their enthusiasm from what they've just heard, right? <laughs> if that is your biggest problem, you are a blessed arts administrator. <laughs> Hooray, I agree. And I always remember as a child being totally confused by this rule because you would then find that everyone would spend the next two minutes clearing their throats and shuffling around. And that was frankly as distracting as clapping the musicians but I wanted to pivot to 
talk to you a little bit about Giving Tuesday. Yes, good. Um, which has had a huge impact. And I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about the thinking behind that and how it's developed over the years. So when, when I was at the 92nd Street Y, and the 92nd Street Y is like, um, it's like a cultural and community center. And it does everything from like jazz concerts to having a senior center to having like parenting classes. There's nothing really like it in the UK. It's like, like if you took a sliver of South Bank, if you took a little bit of the RSA and a good nursery school, like put them all together, that would be like essentially what the 92nd Street Y is. And one of the things we were thinking about was community, right? How do you reimagine what a community center does? And so we were thinking about philanthropy in particular and how you might create more philanthropy, more philanthropic communities. And so we had a simple idea, which was everyone knew about Black Friday and Cyber Monday. We thought, okay, after Black Friday and Cyber Monday, let's create Giving Tuesday. And Giving Tuesday would reverse the trend. So instead of these days, which are about consumption, these would be about essentially compassion. How do you give things to other people? So that was a really simple idea. Black Friday, Cyber Monday, Giving Tuesday. We designed it so nobody owned it. So it wasn't like it was the 92nd Street Wise project. It was designed as a kind of open source brand that anybody could grab and make their own. Here in, in, the, in the US, it raised last year over $2.4 billion dollars um, for nonprofits in the US. We did a COVID special this year or last year. We did a COVID special, which we've never done before in the spring. Giving Tuesday is always in the fall or the autumn for my British listeners. Um, so it, it's, always, it's always in the autumn. And, but we did one in the spring, which raised half a million dollars, sorry, $500 million wow. uh, online this year for, for, for COVID to support uh, in, in times of COVID. What's so fascinating about Giving Tuesday is, yes, we launched it, but it's become strong because people everywhere have grabbed it and made it more interesting and more important. Um, and it's kind of it's it's kind of crazy and kind of wonderful that this idea that you know began on the Upper East Side of New York, ten years later, is in some small way helping um, fight coronavirus in Sierra Leone. Yeah. That's nuts, right? Bro, and actually, it was based on uh, my growing up in the UK with Red Nose Day. If you don't know Red Nose Day, is this day comic relief in the UK? There's this day when everyone stops and buys Red Nose, and but it's a real day when the whole country comes together to celebrate a shared cause. That was what Red Nose Day was. So when we when we put together Giving Tuesday, I was very much thinking about um, how would you reimagine Red Red Nose Day? And finally, Henry, what should we look out for next at the Lincoln Centre? What does right. the autumn term? It, the, I, I think it's going to be a very exciting time. I think, I think the most important thing is um, I've made two suggestions. One is come and see something you might not. I think that's one of the really, we always scour for the things we think are going to be wonderful. But I think one thing which is always worth doing is think about something you might not typically see. Most importantly, whether you are coming to Lincoln Center or any arts organization in New York, um, it is going to be so important for the arts community that people uh, come out come see things, bring your friends, get excited about the work that's been doing. Um, know how valued you as an audience member will be by all the performers, all the, the crew, all the people working in the arts, because we are going to need our audiences to bring us back. The, the real impact you're going to have as an audience member of getting behind the arts community is you bring back the arts community. And by bringing back the arts community, you bring back New York. It's a really nice um, way of talking about the audience. It's a shared endeavour, ultimately. And I think everybody is desperate to get back into in-person concerts and events anyway. So you must be pushing on an open door. Henry Timms, it's been an absolute pleasure 
talking about your journey and listening to your inspiring achievements. Thank you so much for coming on Brits in the Big Apple. It was a great pleasure. You're listening to Brits in the Big Apple, brought to you by the British Consulate in New York. If you'd like to hear more about the work of the British Consulate, please follow us on Twitter or Instagram at UK in New York. Thank you for listening.